This is Dr. Sarah Howard. The Pure Animal Podcast is growing. We're so excited to share our new Pure Animal Ambassadors with you. Join us monthly as we continue to dive deep into the most recent, relevant and interesting topics with our new team members. Associate Professor Wendy Boltzer, Small Animal Surgeon. Dr. Meng Siak, Veterinary Dermatologist. Dr. Nicole Rue, Integrative Veterinarian. And Professor Caroline Mansfield, who's a Small Animal Internal Medicine Specialist. We're thrilled about our new offering and we're sure you'll be able to find inspiration for your practice through the clinical wisdom of our new ambassadors. Welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast, where we enlighten veterinary workers, animal lovers and pet parents about integrative approaches to veterinary medicine and pet health. The Pure Animal Podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. We pay our respects to elders past and present. I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. Joining us today is Dr. Wendy Boltzer, and we're talking about setting up puppies' joints for success. Dr. Wendy Boltzer is a board-certified veterinary surgeon and certified canine rehabilitation practitioner. She has worked around the world and is currently the Associate Professor and Head of Surgery at the University of Sydney Veterinary School. Dr. Boltzer is passionate about teaching veterinary students born from an inspiring mentor she connected with in her third year of her Doctor of Veterinary Medicine. Hello, Wendy. We are so excited to have you on our Pure Animal team, and I know that we are going to be able to cover some great education content together, specifically around joints and joint health, and today we're going to be talking all about puppies. So how are you today on this sunny Monday? I'm great, and I'm so excited to have the chance to chat with you all about this, these interesting topics and to join you. Yeah, we are excited too. Um, And today, like I mentioned, we're going to be talking about some really relevant topics all around setting puppies and young dogs up for success across their lifespan. And I think this episode is going to be really relevant for a general practitioner vet and, um, and anyone in practice who is seeing puppies and young dogs, and particularly those at-risk dogs like large breed dogs and really active dogs. But I also know that there's going to be a lot of pet parents on the line who are really interested in this as well, because really when you require a new dog and particularly a new puppy, um, there's a huge amount of overwhelming information out there. And I know that the breeders are supplying lots of information and maybe your friends at the dog park and your vet and online. So if we can clear up a few things today, I think it would be really helpful. Um, Let's start with what the main things that a pet parent needs to consider in regards to their joint health when they first acquire that young dog or puppy. Yeah. So um, I think that we've, we've learned a lot over the last 30 years about raising puppies and how how best to take care of them and provide them a a great future. And that includes, you know, things like behavior and socialization Mm -hmm. and um, even vaccination. And I think Mm -hmm. that what a lot of talk goes on out there is about how do we prevent disease? Because we, we all want our puppies to live as long as possible. We get there are partners and 
even when they're older, we want them to be, you know, happy and active. And I think Mm. starting as a puppy, it's really important to think about how best to take care of them for, for their development. And speaking about, you know, joint diseases, but also all developmental orthopedic diseases, they often will result in, um, diseases that can cause angular limb deformities. So their legs can grow crooked all the way to, you know, destroyed joints and having osteoarthritis or arthritis. And so I think we can group all those together that those diseases occur as the puppies are growing and puppies grow really quickly. Um, small, yeah, small breed puppies reach adult size at like nine months and, Larger mm-hmm. breeds, somewhere between, you know, 12 and 16 months. And then, you know, mm-hmm. giant breeds can take up to two years to reach maturity. Oh, can they? And, two years, right. Yeah. And, you know, humans don't reach maturity, you know, full size until they're 18. So yeah. they have a time to develop. So we're asking dogs to develop really, really quickly. And that's all based upon how we form our bones. And for the musculoskeletal system, that's the basis where everything starts. And we we create a sort of template first, and it's made out of cartilage. And that cartilage is then slowly converted to bone as mm-hmm. the as the animal grows, as the dog grows. And so during that cartilage template formation that cartilage is soft. And if we do too much excessive um, activities that strain that cartilage, it can fold and break. Mm -hmm. Also, we need to have the space and the time to grow new blood vessels into the cartilage template so that it can then be converted to bone. Bone needs to form in a well-oxygenated environment. So one of the key things that we need to think about especially in larger breeds, even, you know, medium to large giant breeds is how quickly are they growing? We need, how, how can we give them time to convert that cartilage to bone safely? And what kind of environment do they need for that? And over, you know, the last 30 years, we've done a lot of research in, in things like hip dysplasia and elbow dysplasia. And there's been a lot of new developments in that. And the three areas that are found to be most important that we can control, obviously, genetics are genetics. And we, we, if you want a Labrador Retriever or German Shepherd, there is a risk that they'll have hip or elbow dysplasia. So the environment plays a big role in the severity and the prevalence of those diseases. So we can control that by what we feed them, so their diet um, and their environment, how they exercise they're housed and then also when we neuter them um when we spay or neuter them also can play a a key role in the development of those diseases so i those things need to be honestly looked at and there's been recent developments and research publications on those factors yeah and i'd love to get into that a little bit later on because I know that, you know, I, I have a two-year-old dog and 
we were given advice from the reader and then you sort of talk to other people and other vets and things and the advice is so contradictory in a lot of ways. So I think if we can really go in what the latest evidence is in regards to desexing, that would be really helpful. But let's get into that a little bit later. What I'd like to talk about is just right at the start, let's sort of create a bit of a scenario. Uh, a pet parent has acquired a, let's call it a Labrador um, or Golden Retriever. They're, they're pretty um, popular breeds to obtain these days. They've just come home from a breeder with a, you know, an eight-week-old puppy is this the right time when the sort of this puppy is is going to get their vaccinations to start talking about setting up their joints for success? Is this is this too early or is this what you'd recommend sort of right from the start um, considering all of those factors that you mentioned? Yeah, um, even at weaning, so starting at three weeks of age, um, it's now time to start talking about trying to prevent orthopedic disease. And so in, in breeds like the Labrador or the Golden that are predisposed to um, joint and um, developmental diseases like panosteitis, osteochondrosis, mm. um, hypertrophic osteodystrophy, all of those diseases are actually more, more prevalent with mm-hmm. changes in their diet. So diet right. plays a, a huge role. And then how they're housed plays a huge role. So, so for example... In the 80s, we all had wall-to-wall carpeting in our houses, and we mm-hmm. didn't. There wasn't as increased. Well, over time, we've increased the um, the incidence of hip and, and elbow dysplasia, and part of that is because of the housing. We now really? instead of carpet, we have either hardwood floors or tile. Right? I don't know yeah, what. What do you yeah. have in your house? Uh, we have carpets in our bedrooms, but then we have yeah timber floors everywhere else. Yeah, yep. uh, and stairs. Exactly the same. Um, and, mm. and tile. So mm-hmm. hardwood floors and tile. These are really slick floors. In mm. them exercising on these slick floors actually causes a lot of torque and and shearing to mm. on those cartilage templates and those developing bones and joints and can increase the risk of these diseases. Yeah, right. So I recommend housing them on non-slip floors so if that means putting you know um runners down where the puppies are playing most often um things like that can make a big difference um so right yeah so for example you're talking about some of we, we might sort of touch on some of the developmental orthopedic disorders that you mentioned but if an animal is genetically predisposed to it, um, so they might be a Labrador, like you mentioned, and you are able to control everything in their environment and their diet and the time of their desexing to what is sort of the, the optimum recommendation. Can you essentially then sort of switch off the genetic predisposition or are they still likely to develop those issues later in life but perhaps delay the onset or reduce the kind of severity of those disorders yeah so for for hip dysplasia you can reduce the incidence by 50 percent so like reduce the number of puppies that have it um for for elbow dysplasia you can reduce the the incidence a little bit but but not as much as hip dysplasia, but you can reduce the severity, which means, you know, the onset of arthritis 
in severe arthritis is delayed by years. So you can yeah, delay right. those those diseases by years or avoid them completely, a hundred percent. So wow. there, both of those diseases have over forty different genes involved, and mm-hmm. some of those genes are directly related to the joint, either the hip or the elbow, but other genes are directly related to the development of arthritis. And so Mm. you could be a carrier for hip dysplasia, but if you don't have the genes to develop osteoarthritis, you may never show that disease. So you don't have radiographs or, or, and you never develop osteoarthritis. So that's why some puppies when they're young may have hip laxity and yet they don't go on to develop arthritis later and Mm. people are like well do they have hip dysplasia or not and technically if as a puppy they have lax hips they do technically are carriers or have hip dysplasia but they don't develop osteoarthritis because they don't have the genes for that so we don't there's so many genes involved right now we don't know the full genetics of how to marker dogs to say who will and who will not develop the arthritis subsequent to mm. hip dysplasia. So the only thing we can do is change the environment to try and minimize that risk as much as possible. And so you may have parents um, that the breeders have selected for that have no um, evidence of hip dysplasia, and yet they can mm-hmm. still have puppies with hip dysplasia mm. or elbow dysplasia. And it's not the breeder's fault. It's just that there are so many genes involved that it's kind of a a mix it up and see who is lucky or yeah. unlucky enough to get that to get all the the genes that would g- then give them the disease. So if yeah. you have a, a Labrador, you're never going to get it the risk down to zero. It's just yeah. not possible. But you can yeah. minimize it through breeding it. But we use now things called um um breeding they're sort of um a a a breeding calculation and Mm -hmm. it's a computer generated calculated risk and it's based off of not just the parents but um the parents' siblings the parents grandparents Mm -hmm. parents grandparents siblings siblings like so that we can catch those ones that unfortunately had the they threw the dice and they got all the genes, whereas nobody yeah. else in the litter did. So you can have one yeah. individual puppy in the litter who develops the disease and none of the other puppies do and the parents don't either. But wow. you can be a person. Ha- yeah. So when people talk about why is it that my puppy has it and no one else does, and that's because, again, there's so many genes involved. I never knew that. I mean, I always thought... And, and it's been a while since I was in practice and much longer <laughs> since when I was in uni. But I, mm. I just always thought that if a puppy had evidence of hip dysplasia, they would always go on to develop arthritis. Um, so you've just completely debunked that for me. And particularly, you know, there was so much emphasis on having um, the the hip scoring done and sort of only buying a puppy that had a certain hip score. And you're saying that that, that may not be as relevant in these day and age and is that sort of hip scoring being replaced by these breeding calculations well no I would say no so up to 70 percent of dogs with hip laxity at four months of age don't go on to have osteoarthritis in their hips as adults 70 percent wow 
That's yeah, and it could be up to seventy percent. Now, it depends on the severity of the laxity, right? But we still yeah. recommend that you get the hips scored at okay four to six months. Well, four to six young, months. Okay, four to six months of age, right? We still yep. recommend do that because then it tells us whether or not they have hip dysplasia. In other words, they have the genetics yep. for hip laxity at risk of. Yeah. And they're at risk of developing arthritis in those hips later in life. Yeah. Another consideration is the breed. So if you have a breed that's predisposed to hip dysplasia, then the puppy having laxity is more concerning, right? And mm-hmm. we want to investigate that a little further. But mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have diseased hips later in life. And I think that's really important for us to think about. Yeah. And that it is such they they're really complicated diseases that you can't just you know eyeball with a single test and say yes or no. Yeah, and it's elbows. You said sort of elbows was a little different. I mean, if if there's evidence of elbow dysplasia, you can maybe delay the onset of the arthritis, but it's they're more likely to develop arthritis in that joint as opposed to hip laxity. Yeah, is that correct. And that and yeah. That- to do with the fact that it's the elbow joint. The elbow joint is the most unforgiving joint in your mm-hmm. body. And it mm. needs its three bones together. And not only can it flex and extend, it's not just a hinge joint, but it also, you can rotate your radius and ulna around your humerus. And mm. so that supination, pronation, and that really dynamic movement requires precision Um with formation and interaction of those joints. So it's if it's off even a couple millimeters, you can develop osteoarthritis. Okay. That yep. Yeah, that said, you can breed dogs. So recent studies have shown that um, you can breed dogs who have Labradors, who have um, elbow dysplasia um, genetics. And if you feed them the right diet, you can reduce the severity of the elbow dysplasia and even the prevalence of it um, if you start wow. really, really young, so less than three yep. months of age. So, okay. So, yeah, and so I mean, what is, yeah, what is that diet? Like what, well, what is the recommendation according to the literature? Yeah, so there was a study they did where they did a fish-based diet, so a diet high in icosapentaenoic and docosahexanoic acids. Mm-hmm. Um from three months to 12 months of age, and they had reduced severity of hip and elbow dysplasia compared to littermate puppies that were fed a chicken-based diet. Right. And then, yeah, another study looked at oral hyaluronic acid, um, Mm -hmm. which is a component of normal joint cartilage and Mm -hmm. collagen. These puppies were supplemented from three months of age to 20 months of age. And they were given about, of the hyaluronic acid, one milligram per kilogram per day. And they had mm-hmm. reduced prevalence as well as severity of elbow dysplasia. So, okay. so there are things, wow. yeah, just in diet, let alone yeah. um, environment. So, yeah. And so with these two studies, the first one you mentioned went to 12 months and the second one to 20 months. Did they then follow these dogs through their lifetime? Like was there any influence on the diet, on the sort of development of arthritis later on? No, they haven't followed them that far, so they we don't know. The only study so it was just the dysplastic joints. Dogs, yeah, out to 
to death, the cause of death. So it was a study where they did, again, Labradors, they fed um, half the litter um, a, a ad-lib diet. So that means they were allowed to eat as much as they wanted to. And oh, then gosh. the other dog, <laughs> the other half of the litter, they restricted them to um, a body condition score that was slightly underweight. So mm-hmm. out of one to nine, they fed them, they kept them at about four to five. Mm-hmm. Overweight mm-hmm. is considered six or higher. So they mm-hmm. kept, they prevented them from being overweight or obese. And they found that they lived two years longer because they had less okay osteoarthritis and less severe progression of their osteoarthritis over their lifespan. So that's that's right. huge. Two years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's it is huge because I mean a, a dog that size, their typical lifespan would be what, sort of like thirteen to fifteen years, you'd say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So two years yeah. is yeah, is um, you know, that's that's sort of fifteen percent of their whole lifespan increased. And so was this study looking at only joint health as the outcome they were measuring or like any cause of death? And it just so happened that the ones that had an ad-lib diet were, were they euthanized because of poor joint health at the end? Is that what happened? That was the most common reason to oh, be really? euthanized earlier yeah, than really. the other dogs. Wow. In addition to that, you can also understand when the puppies are are not even born yet, so in utero, if there is a larger litter or there's a higher birth weight in the puppy, they're more likely to develop hip dysplasia. Oh, so okay. under the understanding these things is important as well. Yeah, yeah. Is this simply related to the increased mass that's going through? like sort of the increased weight um, that those joints are having to bear? Or is it related to a higher body fat percentage, sort of causing a total pro-inflammatory effect on the body? Is there any indication of, you know, what the sort of the main sort of driving factor is there on overweight dogs and development of arthritis? Yeah, it's partly due to um, how much energy intake there is. Yes, that Mm -hmm. energy intake does drive um, growth. Not necessarily protein. Um, it, it's more about the total fat intake that they have, somewhat carbohydrates, but mostly fat. We want to, okay. when, when we're feeding large breed puppies, we want to control the fat to be about 12% of the food yep. on a dry matter basis. But then yep. if you have a, a premium food, it also is more likely to have um, excessive calcium and phosphorus in the diet as well. And so mm. when, yeah, when you have that, then that also drives development of the bones and you get much more cartilage template forming without having, and then there's the higher body weight and that can cause more developmental diseases, but that can be anything from panosteitis to um, angular limb deformities to OCD, they all increase with overnutrition. Yeah, no, I remember the calcium phosphorus ratio and amount was always a really um, important topic to discuss with 
with pet parents of larger breed dogs and it was always recommended to make sure that the diet that they were ingesting was tailored to their specific needs. Do you have any insight on what the specific ratios that are required across the sort of different sizes of dogs and how they differ between small and large breed dogs to control that cartilage to bone conversion rate? Yeah. So what we usually recommend is that the calcium to phosphorus ratio be 1.2 to 1 um, in the food and that the the calcium overall is definitely 2%, 1 to 2% of the food in, as a dry matter basis. And that's to limit mm-hmm. the concentration of it because Dogs before six months of age um, cannot control the amount of calcium and phosphorus that they take in and absorb from their gut. So everything they eat goes into their bloodstream. That's right. And that means that the more they take in, the more they're going to deposit and the faster they're going to grow. And the same with, with caloric intake as well. So we usually recommend that the calorie intake or the energy density of the food is reduced. And that's about three and a half to four kcals per gram, which is what you get mm-hmm. in large breed specific puppy food compared to regular puppy food, which is, you know, four to four and a half kcals per gram. Oh, okay. Right. Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, regular puppy food is about 20% fat and we want to keep it to 12% or less. So these, mm-hmm. in these ways, we can then slow down the the growth rate of dogs. Now, if you let them eat anything that they want, of course, all bets are off because the more you take yeah. in, the more you're going to absorb. So, we again, we want to make sure that they are on a body condition score of four to five out of nine, and mm-hmm. and that again is to control their growth rate. Mm-hmm, sure. And um, what about, you mentioned that there's the papers on hyaluronic acid supplementation and obviously the EPA and DHA. Is there any other re- recommendations that you would have for introducing other supplements and when they can be introduced? Yeah, you have to be really careful not to supplement them with vitamin D because mm-hmm. any supplementation, that whatever they have in their diet, in their formulated diet, is enough. Too much will result in, in more severe disease, um, include any of the orthopedic diseases, including angular limb deformities, hip dysplasia, all of that. Wow, so, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So again, that's very, you have to be very careful about that. The the most studied supplements are, of course, um, fish oil, EPA and DHA, and those are considered really important. And so any large breed dog or, or giant breed dog, I always, as puppies, recommend that they go on um, a puppy food that's not only formulated for for those larger breeds and breed specific, but also that is fish based, and and yeah. that is to give them more of the omega three fatty acids, which have been shown to reduce um, arthritis and joint disease. Mm-hmm. And then I I always ask them to make sure that they're not giving any um, supplements that contain minerals or vitamins in addition to the formulated dog food because, again, over-supplementation results in in problems. So the premium dog foods are kind of a problem because the the fancier the food is, the better 
the quality of the food, the more energy there is in it and the mm. faster they'll grow and the more likely they are to have higher vitamins and minerals in it. And that actually can be worse for a larger giant breed because they'll just start growing faster and yeah, and develop right. the orthopedic diseases. So it's kind of counterintuitive, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And what about those? I know there's a lot of pet parents these days that like to home make their pet's food. What would you recommend if someone was wanting to do that as a resource they could use to ensure that that food was formulated to sort of provide the right amount of all of the important minerals and have the, you know, the low vitamin D content? Yeah, I would say that that they would need to contact their veterinarian and have a diet specifically designed for their breed of dog and age. Mm -hmm. And usually they go through a nutrition service where the nutritionist specifically tells them exactly how much and how many grams of food to make and what to put in it to make sure it's, it's, very specific for their pet. And it's very difficult to do that. It's really difficult. And I know people want to do that. It can take hours and hours of time. Like when I worked at the zoo, the zookeepers would spend at minimum half their day preparing the food. I mean, it, wow. it, it is so important. It's um, a big commitment. So, yeah. 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 And um, just a thought that's sort of come into my mind and that we haven't really touched on yet is the uh, people that choose to give bones to their puppies. So right. I guess that I from would a, not recommend. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> I was just thinking from a nutritional perspective. I know from a right. dentition perspective there's, you know, there's, um, there's people who are very conflicted in their views there. There's some who are very pro-bones and some who are against bones because they fracture teeth. But from a nutrition perspective, are they getting too much calcium and phosphorus and other minerals from the bone? That would then upset the balance. Yeah, right. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so even like soft bones, like chicken necks and things, where they eat the entire bone, that's obviously going to be upsetting the balance. Yeah, those are mostly cartilage. So chicken bones, soft bones, are cartilage, and they have Mm -hmm. a really high content of phosphorus. So now Mm. they're getting way too much phosphorus than calcium. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the homeostasis is is altered, and so they may even be removing calcium deposits from the bone, the bones become weaker. And you can imagine that will result in greater risk of angular limb deformities, so growing crooked legs, things like that. So I I once had a patient, it was a Tosa Inu, which is a giant breed dog that he was fed nothing but raw chicken carcasses. And he actually, his metacarpal bones folded they were so weak and he had an angular limb deformity in his, in his feet. Yeah. And that's something that can't be corrected once it develops. Well, we had to do multiple surgeries to straighten his feet, put bone plates and screws, you know, do osteotomies. It was quite, quite invasive and and not okay. You know? Yeah. 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 Oh, this is just such important information to get out there. I um, 
yeah, I, I'm I'm quite shocked actually with some of the things that you are saying and some of the sort of blanket recommendations that are given to to pet parents. So it's really important, really important podcast today. Thank you so much, Wendy. Um, Absolutely. And so we've sort of touched on well, we've we've done more than touch on. We've talked a lot about nutrition and we've talked about some supplements. Is there have you got any comments on um, sort of cartilage building blocks such as glucosamine and chondroitin and you know they're they're sort of common ingredients in almost all joint supplements these days. Is there any evidence for giving those to young puppies? So what what we found is that the absorption of glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate in dogs and puppies is really poor. And so mm-hmm. most supplements don't actually work with just your generic formulations because they can't be mm-hmm. absorbed. But there yeah. are newer ones that have improved formulation that um, when given appropriately do slow cartilage degradation and um, are recommended for puppies as well. But again, we don't want to over supplement them. We need to control it very precisely. So again, like hyaluronic acid and things, things of that nature are, are controlled and how many milligrams are given per day based on their body weight. And, and that's important too. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. That's really clear. So let's sort of jump topics a little bit now and talk talk about the other important uh, pillar that you discussed early on, which is desexing. So mm-hmm. what is the latest evidence with regards to desexing? When to desex and does it differ between different sizes and breeds of dogs? Yeah. What we found is that if they're desexed in, a, in general, um, puppies that are large breeds, so anything 20 kilos or larger as an adult would would qualify. If they're desexed at less than five months of age, this increases their risk of hip arthritis and, and elbow arthritis. Okay. Right. It also increases their risk of cranial cruciate ligament rupture. Mm. And um, in male dogs, for example, it increases their their risk for hip dysplasia one and a half fold. And wow. so we recommend delaying neutering if you can as long as possible until their, their growth plates are closed. The minimum yep. age is eight months, we recommend. so. Okay. And for the giant breed dogs who you say might not mature until they're 16 months, would you be pushing people to try and wait until they're at least over 12 months? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because there was this whole sort of old wives' tale of, you know, wait until they've had their first season and then desex them. And it's less about them having the season, but more about their sort of just total age. Is that right? Well, it, it, but it is about the sex hormones. So sex hormones regulate that cartilage template development and conversion. So they slow the, the physis down and allow it to develop more normally. And dogs who are desexed less than five months of age end up taller with um, Mm. straighter legs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that the straight legs actually, so their joints, you know how they say crooked is a dog's hind leg? Well, that thing comes from the fact that when a dog stands, most of the time, the legs, the joints in the limbs are slightly flexed. Mm. If they are neutered really young, they stand with the joints almost in full extension. That causes a lot of stress to the tendons and ligaments. Mm. 
And yeah. one of those, is, of course, is a cruciate ligament. But all of the tendons yeah. and ligaments are um, more torn up with normal wear and tear because they're seeing a lot more force placed upon them. And that goes for the shoulder in dogs, in the forelimbs, their carpus, and then their lower spine. And of course, their hips and their stifles in the hind limbs. Wow. Yeah. So um, all of those sort of young puppies that are coming in at, you know, five, six months to be desexed, really, they are being put at a disadvantage in two different ways. First of all, just allowing those sort of joints to, you know, to, to grow and develop until they're older, but also the impact of the sex hormones on the development of those joints as well. Um, so that's, yeah, I think that's the important recommendation. And how do we sort of get this information out there, you know, other than what we're trying to do with our um, podcasts and our related articles? Is there, do you feel that there's sort of a need for, you know, a, a um, kind of standard um, process recommendation that are taught sort of uni students and presented at conferences and making sure that everyone knows this is the latest evidence? Because it sounds like it's very sort of clear difference between what's happening in a lot of practices and what is in published in the literature and what you're recommending. Yeah, and I think that's part of the problem is that I can't make a global comment for every breed and every breed is mm. different. There yeah. also have been some studies out there that are just dating, data mining retrospective studies that are not, they, they give us an indication that something might be going on, but there are very few studies that are actually prospective. But there are now ones that are prospective that have shown that, you know, hip dysplasia and cruciate ligament disease is related to development, having sex hormones present. What I think we need to take away from that is that if you have a dog, a puppy that you know is going to be a larger size as an adult, you ideally would wait as long as possible to mm-hmm. spay or neuter them, to desex them. But if you have, I had one owner call me at 11 months and his Bernese mountain dog had started, you know, urinating on all the, the potted plants mm. in the house. And he said, my wife's going to kill me if you don't let me neuter him. (laughs) And I said, well, we're neutering him. Because, you know, sometimes you just, you have to because of all the other secondary effects. Yeah. 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 So I'm not saying don't, I'm just saying wait as long as you can, because that would be the better outcome for the animal. But if it's in a shelter, it needs to be desexed early in order to reduce pet overpopulation. And yeah. and I'm not saying that that's not important. It really, really is. But if you have yeah. an owned dog who has predisposition in their breed for, for, or, you know, developmental orthopedic disease, then trying to, to give them the benefit of those sex hormones as long as possible is, would be the best scenario. And so if you do have just a sort of, you know, a tiny dog or even just an under 10 kilo dog, are you saying that it's less important? Is your recommendation still to wait or is it much less important? It's much less important. I think, well, they remember they reach adult size at somewhere between nine and 10 months. So if you wait till they're six months, they're definitely on the road to being mature. And so therefore you have less likely risk of causing orthopedic disease in them. So I think, yes, you can neuter them at five to six months of age with, without worry. 
Okay, that's good. That's good to know. And what about exercise? This is this is obviously another really important, um, you know, environmental impact that can influence joint development and also soft tissue um, sort of injury risk. So, can we talk about some of the um, sort of recommendations that you would be giving for those at-risk dogs in terms of exercise when they're in that first twelve months of their life? Yeah, absolutely. So, the exercise that we we want them we want them to exercise absolutely because it it results in um, improved joint development and congruency, and it results in muscle development. And that muscle and tendon and ligament development is what supports the joints and the bones. And so Mm -hmm. we always want them to exercise, but we don't want them exercising on hard surfaces, so concrete um, or slippery surfaces, so hardwood floors. We want them exercising on grass um, and, and having hills, but not not doing high impact activities. So I don't recommend they start agility or have really hard um, exercise with dogs that are twice their size until their growth plates have closed. Mm-hmm. What that means is that they can go to the dog park, but you want to hang out with dogs that are of similar breed or size and not yeah. with a giant breed dog, you know, body slamming the little yeah. Labrador puppy. That's not a good scenario. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the other, yeah. The other kind of exercise you want to avoid is anything that has results in them having sharp turns or mm. um, very sharp stops and starts because that can cause cartilage damage again, because Mm -hmm. of their size and their growth rate. So chasing balls has been shown to increase the risk. Chasing balls. Yeah. Such a common thing that That people do, isn't it? I know. And everybody wants to do that, of course. (laughs) Yeah. But you want to limit how much you do it to, you know, five minutes or less a day. And then just have them run around and play is a lot better of an exercise. Um, And in you know, I think that training them as well is a good way to stimulate their their mental capacity and what they want to do as well as retrieving. And then when yeah. they're, you know, eight months or older, retrieving is, is a good thing to do. I've seen people, you know, start training Labradors for field trial and hunting at like four four months of age. And that's way, way too young to yeah. do that. We need to wait and let them develop normally. Yeah. Okay. So that's pretty clear. So, so going for sort of off-leash walks is okay. They can do running around. Hills are quite good, building the muscle strength. Dog parks are okay as long as you're selecting their playmates for them. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Um, things to avoid would be, you know, throwing balls and other other objects for more than five minutes a day where they're sort of doing that sharp stopping and turning and bringing it back to you. Um, And obviously, like you mentioned, you know, some of the kind of agility type work and other training activities, maybe wait till they're developed. Okay. Yeah. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good summary. Um, And I know we're getting close to time, Wendy, but is there anything else that, that pet parents of these at-risk dogs need to be restricting? Anything else they need to, need to sort of have in mind? What about, you know, jumping up and down from cars, stairs, um, you know, often on beds and couches and things? Is that, is that important to control um, at this age as well? I think the, you know, beds and, and couches is, is fine as long as they're 
is a rug where they land. Yes. But, yeah. you know, stairs is probably a no-no until until they're older. And I usually, okay. I baby gate off at my, my stairs where I have hardwood floors and make yeah. them walk up and down them and wait for me and things like that because yeah. of that yeah. high impact and the sharp turn that they'll do when they get down at the bottom. You know, they always jump. Yeah, and they're slipping and sliding. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's great. And so just just finally, we just wanted to finish on some sort of tips about arthritis. We've we've talked about this throughout, but what would be your, your top three tips for keeping joints healthy as long as possible and trying to delay or even prevent the onset of arthritis? Um, I would say keep your dog lean. That's mm-hmm. probably the most important one. And I would start them on um, omega-3 fatty acids right away. Yep. Yep. And then I would I would recommend an active lifestyle that keeps them happy and occupied because that makes everybody happy in the house. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yes, mental health is sometimes as important as physical health even for our pets. So that's I think, right. um, yeah, I think that's that's very sound advice. And gosh, I've really loved this chat today. I think there's a hundred different clinical pearls that we could pull out of it. Um, so we'll have a good time writing the show notes. <laughs> and um, if there's any um, any of the papers that you've mentioned, Wendy, we'd, we'd love to link them as well. Um, so those sort of okay. particular ones that you've discussed would be great. And we look forward to um, talking to you again next time where we're going to be talking about our older guys and how we can help to manage arthritis once it is present. So thank you again, Wendy, and you have a wonderful day. Thank you too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of the Pure Animal Podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. Make sure you tune in next month where we'll be talking to Dr. Nicole Rue about an integrative vet's approach to liver health. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for individualised veterinary advice and listeners should ensure to seek advice from their pet's own veterinary professional.